After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Josh, it seems like you and I haven't talked for, I can't even think of how long. Our recording schedule, we usually record once a week, but because of my traveling a bit and you had some busy times and meetings and things, we sort of changed our recording schedule a little bit and it, and it's put me off a little bit i'm 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 anxious to get into a lot of stuff that's happened in the national hockey league and regarding officiating and player safety but i also feel like there's this need to catch up are you are you good is everything okay are, are, are you happy and and life is generally moving along as as you'd like it to hey it's busy it's busy here it's uh, busy in the nhl it's, it's never a dull moment and it's amazing how you know an extra day or two in there and all of a sudden you've got a whole pile of activities, pile of actions, pile of player safety outcomes. Everybody's got stuff going on. So yeah, even even just a day, Todd, and, and you feel like you miss a lot in this league. It's a busy time of year. We're down to single digits in terms of games left for a bunch of teams. And it's an exciting time of the year because we're going to have the playoffs to look forward to in no time at all. And what we're looking forward to now, though, is the Scouting the Rest podcast. We want to please make sure that you are following our social media channels. For Josh, of course, it's at Scouting the Refs on both Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you've bookmarked ScoutingTheRefs.com in your browser, at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and Instagram to follow me. Coming up on this week's episode, it's another slash to the face, skilling it up and the repercussions. Another ref injury, put your lid on, and two sticks are better than one. I think that sort of captures mostly where we're going in this one. Yeah, I, I think you, you need the bucket, but you don't necessarily <laughs> need the two sticks. Or if you've got the two sticks, you have to be very careful, but we'll, we'll dig into that. Okay, there's um, a lot of people that have sort of an issue with the NHL allowing a non-specific injury reporting policy for teams. It's going to become a bigger issue, I think, as we move forward, and gambling becomes a bigger part of our everyday life in terms of sports and the NHL, but this one struck me. In a game between the Edmonton Oilers and the Los Angeles Kings, referee Ian Walsh was forced to leave the game. And the official report said apparently he suffered an upper body injury. I mean, how can we expect teams to be more specific with what ails players and keeps them out of the lineup when the league is putting out a story? <laughs> it's, an, it's an upper body injury. I mean, oh, come on. Really? Can't we just say what happened? Well, no, we don't want to say what it is. You, you Heaven forbid players start targeting the officials specific <laughs> points on the upper body or, or something like that. <laughs> My God, I, th I think the the officials are targeted enough. I don't think uh, explaining what an injury is would be a would be a big problem. Just maybe that's just me, but that's I think it would be okay to say what injury Ian Walsh suffered, and we hope he's back in action. Soon. Yeah, absolutely. And for what it's worth, you know, you, you get the exciting moments when you get to go back and and have the throwback game of the one referee, two linesmen, which is always interesting. Kyle Raymond's been through it, so for him to go solo for the rest of that Kings Oilers game, not a huge deal, but. We're getting close to the playoffs, Todd, and, and we're getting close to playoff assignments and figuring out which guys are going to get selected to work the Stanley Cup playoffs. So 
it makes a big difference for an official and it, it makes a big difference for their wallet because you do get playoff bonuses for rounds you work. So when, when you're getting an injury this time of year, you know, you're looking at how make this affect your playoff chances as an official. So a, a scary moment, hopefully while she's OK and we see him back out there soon. Definitely. This won't happen, of course, during the playoffs because we have backup linesmen and referees at all of the games. There were two incidents of improper headgear last week involving the Montreal Canadiens. First up, it was the Habs goaltender Jake Allen who got clipped by a shot that knocked a strap loose on his mask. He was aware of it. It appeared as if he was trying to let the officials know that his mask was loose. Uh, when he became a little frustrated that the play was still going on, he removed the mask. Of course, that got the official's attention, and it also earned him a penalty. Can you refresh us as to why this was the case, Josh? So we have some pretty interesting rules and very specific ones, Todd, around how these situations happen. You don't get a stoppage in play when your helmet comes off as a goaltender. It's, it's not an immediate automatic whistle. So assuming your helmet does come off, your team has possession of the puck, fine, they blow the play dead. But if there's an immediate scoring chance from the other side, we play on. So that being said, having a strap break on your helmet is absolutely not cause for a whistle from the officials. So if a strap breaks, the idea is to keep playing. Now, where we get a little sticky is if your helmet comes off and you get possession, that's when you can stop play. But how it comes off is the problem here. And we had some guys who are very good at the accidentally on purpose. I think of yeah. Brayden Holtby was good at it, Mike Smith, where the, the helmet comes loose, they draw a stoppage in play, and it, it seemed to happen to them more frequently than others. Amazing how some guys' helmets are just much less secure. <laughs> the problem with Jake Allen, there's no how did it come off. I mean, it's clearly, obviously intentional. He reaches up with his glove, he, he tests the mask, and then he takes it off. So... As a referee, you're seeing that play. You, you can't even give him the benefit of the doubt that he shook his mask. You know, the strap broke loose. Oh, it fell off. Uh, he saw the mask physically being removed by Allen. So Allen removed all possible doubt that anyone could have given him on that play by making it clearly obvious that he was intentionally removing his mask. So no choice for Frederick Lecouillet to blow the whistle there. He, it's it's not a safety thing. It's You'll let the guy play without his mask. It's a helmet rule it's 9.6 it's you can't remove your helmet intentionally and that's what it comes under so it's funny because we had so many people blowing up twitter about you know goaltender safety and it, it's a safety issue that he's playing with a broken strap or if his mask comes off nope this rule is purely around how your mask comes off and if you take it off deliberately with your hand it's kind of hard to avoid a penalty for that one it's basically mask over glass at that point yeah. All right. <laughs> there, yeah, there you go. Okay. There was another. One. There was another one also involving the Canadiens and Jordan Harris. The next night, he's making his NHL debut. Maybe he wasn't quite clear on how the helmet rule works in the National Hockey League. He lost his lid in a scuffle with Alex Galorn. Not the first to do so. Instead of immediately correcting the issue, he continued to play, and that earns him the two-minute minor because you can't do that anymore. You can't. You have two options. You can either collect your helmet, put it back on your head and secure it, or you can head to the bench. You, you can do either one, but what you can't do is what Harris did, is circle back and try to make a defensive play on the puck. So the officials were giving him some time. You could see his teammates were waving him off, trying to point him towards the bench. But as soon as he circled back, started back skating back down in the slot, the refs blew the play dead, called the penalty for failure to play called the penalty for playing without a helmet, which is always a, a fun one to call now when we think, how many years did the league have players <laughs> playing without a helmet? And now you're you're five seconds without one and you're going to the box. 
Times have changed. That, just before we leave the Montreal Canadiens, there was a good question that was asked of you on Twitter. It involved the Canadiens goaltender Jake Allen once again, who lost his stick during play, and Canadiens defenseman David Savard picked it up and returned it to him. The, the question from Chris was, isn't it illegal to play with two sticks? Well, yeah, it kind of is, but can you explain exactly how this rule works in the NHL? I love how you worded it, Todd, because you made it sound so simple and so accurate. It is illegal to play with two sticks. It is not illegal to skate with two sticks as long as you don't join the play. So in this case, that's what we saw with Savard. He picks up the goaltender stick in the corner, still carrying his own stick, delivers it back to his keeper, and, and they play on. Now, had he become involved in the play, uh, it would have been a minor penalty. Also, it's important to note the NHL rule is different than what we see in USA Hockey or Hockey Canada, where they allow leeway for a player to pick up a goal stick. In the NHL, you can actually pick up another player's stick and deliver it to him again, as long as you're not joining the play. So that the second you make a play on the puck, take the body on an opposing player or put yourself in the way where you're influencing where the play is going. That's a whistle. But as long as you avoid any involvement whatsoever, you can skate, not play, with two sticks. Okay, so not that anyone would ever do this, but I'm channeling my inner Roger Nielsen oh, here good, who like to explore the rule book. So it's not illegal to skate with two sticks. Is it illegal to skate with, say, three, four, or five sticks? I don't believe the NHL rulebook specifically calls out the quantity of sticks being uh, carried. They, they do say a player may stay, skate with two sticks, but uh, if we're going by the way the rule is written, I, I think you could probably carry a whole bag of sticks as long yeah. as you avoid the play there. Um, you know, Dispensing them on the ice, handing them out to your teammates <laughs> that may start to prove a bit challenging, but, <laughs> but you know what? Coaches will ruin it. Somebody's going to try to figure out a way to make that work. They'll just have a, a, a skating stick boy coming out on the ice to deliver new sticks. Undoubtedly. Anyhow, I'm just a little curious about that because <laughs> I'm always looking for the loophole. Good okay. job, Mr. Nielsen. <laughs> let's, let's deal with a couple of suspensions. Nick Ritchie got the stick up and took a gentle swipe, we'll say, at the face of Kevin Shattenkirk and the Department of Player Safety uh, appeared to basically follow the precedent set from an earlier ruling in a similar case and gave Richie a one-game suspension. Personally, I thought it could have been more because it was on the ice during game action, and I'm not really concerned with how gentle or soft a slash it was. He took a swipe at a player on the ice with his stick, and I think he could have been given more than one game. I agree. I think, and I feel like a broken record because we've said that before of looking at the incidents that are plays either away from the puck or not intended to separate the puck from the player, but are purely headhunting, physical intimidation, menacing, maybe not menacing yeah. in this case, but those types of situations where I think they should be penalized a little more strictly. I'd love for the on-ice officials to, when they catch them during the game, call a more severe penalty when it's applicable under the rule book and i would absolutely love player safety to come in after the fact and say you know what this this had no bearing on the game or the play this was a retaliatory move this was a potential for injury and tack on an extra game to it because of that i, I think that's the only way you clean up these kinds of things yeah we're going to talk a little bit more about cleaning up some stuff but i do want to mention other suspension notes casey sezikis in a game versus the carolina hurricanes crunched canes defenseman brendan smith into the end boards as Smith went back to retrieve the puck. I mean, 
this to me was an easy call for the officials who were who were watching this. As he watched the play from the high angle, Sezikis is charging from the blue line in. He does stop skating by the time he gets to the bottom of the face-off circle, but it, he just drives Brendan Smith into the boards. And I'm a little surprised that this wasn't called a major penalty and reviewed. It was a two-minute minor assessed. Player safety took a look and decided they were going to suspend him for one more game. I, again, I could have seen at least two here. Uh, agreed. I, I could see two games, and I was surprised to only see two minutes because this, to me, was a clear-cut boarding situation. He hit right through the numbers. You have a potential for injury there, a player going awkwardly into the boards. You have to remember, though, Todd, the officials are instructed to call the game as they see it in real time. So they're making that call on the ice by what they saw live. Now, we have introduced the ability for NHL referees to review any major or match penalties to see if they want to confirm that call or reduce it. It's a one-way review. You have to call the more severe penalty with the option of reducing it to a minor. So the NHL doesn't necessarily want them going in and saying, hey, this is a minor. Let's, let's take a look and see if it should be a major. And they don't want guys calling it as the major purely with the goal of taking it to review and then deciding between the major and the minor. The, the, the desired outcome is for them to call it as they see it on the ice and then use replay as a tool to confirm that call. I think this is one of those cases where if you know it's a minor penalty, you know absolutely that you're you're giving at least a minor for this one. I, I don't see the harm in calling the major. Call mm-hmm. it and, and go back and review it and make sure you're right. But it's these types of circumstances that I think that second look does help the officials make the right call. And, and it would be a great opportunity to do so. It, it's just changing that mindset of calling what you see on the ice versus knowing that it's either going to be a major or minor. And let me call the more severe one because I have the option to reduce it upon review. And I, I wish they would loosen the reins a little bit more and, and encourage the officials in these cases to call. If you think it's borderline between a two or a five, call the five, review it and, and go from there. I think it gives them a better chance to get it right. And I don't think it's going to swamp us with reviews. There aren't that many situations that would call for it. But in this case, I, I think they would have gotten the right call. I think on, on second review, I would have given it a major penalty. On second review, I would have assessed a major penalty. And I have a feeling that the on-ice officials may have agreed. And and I guess that's it, is the, the rule book has to be a bit of a living and breathing thing, too. So we've done this for a while now with the review. As you mentioned, it only works one way. Maybe it needs, needs to be looked at, and whether it's a minor or a major, you can decide to to review it. There will only be a few specific penalties that are allowed to be reviewed. Remember, they're talking about being able to eliminate a penalty if a major is called when you have a review. So this is this should all be part of that same discussion, I think. I absolutely agree. And it, even if you don't change the rule book, just changing that mindset of having the officials feel empowered on those borderline calls to say, you know, this is a this is a pending major. And in this case, I, you go with that, you review it and go, you know what, I, I was right or I was I was wrong. But there are definitely those situations when you're just not going to get as much information in that real time live view on the ice as you will with a replay. So I I don't want to make this a game of replays and I don't want the league to officiate via video review, but, but I think there are some circumstances and I think this, this is play is one of them where, you know what? A, A second look wouldn't have been a bad thing. There is one other New York Islander note I want to get in here. As Barry Trotz was trying to call a timeout in a game against the Blues, he banged a stick against the boards to try to get the referee's attention, didn't have any success, so he tossed it on the ice, which, of course, got him the timeout and also got him a little more than he bargained for, didn't it? 
Well, he got he certainly got everybody's attention on that one. I don't think Steve Kazari appreciated how he got the attention, but uh, it worked. Uh, Trotz's response had the desired effect. And, you know, there was a there was a little miscommunication out there. Some members of the, the media reporting that he was disputing the call or a missed call that had happened moments prior to the goal, which after the fact, they, they clarified and said, nope, he just just wanted a timeout. But. Man, when you're down for nothing, you got that frustration boiling over, you're feeling ignored, and Barry Trotz does not want to be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of understandable, I guess. We recorded our last episode of the Scouting the Rest podcast before the now infamous Arizona-Anaheim game and the beatdown that Jay Beagle gave to Coyotes forward Troy Terry of the Ducks. I, I think everybody knows the story, I, but I thought... We should give it a little perspective since just about everyone has weighed in on this. I'm not sure if there's an area that you want to look at or, or talk about. I, I know that some have criticized the linesmen for not jumping into the fight soon enough, but I think that's a, a terrible mistake. First off, there were several altercations in this scrum happening at once. Second, the linesmen have to protect themselves, too, if they're going to be effective in terms of trying to break things up. And it appeared to me that they were looking to try to break things up, but also trying to dodge a bunch of punches that were kind of headed their way. And you don't want to catch one of the fists from Jay Beagle, as Troy Terry demonstrates. Poking the goalie for a covered puck with a 5 nothing game, it's over the line. Does it warrant the level of escalation that we saw? I don't think so. Um, I, I'll just give it to you now, Josh, and say, I don't, I don't know where you want to go with this, or I'm not sure what else uh, we can add, but there's a couple things I'll, I'll touch on after you. Yeah, well, I, I think that your first point's a valid one, Todd, and it, it's a concern when you have officials breaking things up and, and you've got scrums happening all over the place that in order for the officials to remain safe, you really don't want to break it up unless your partner's going in with you because you're shoving yourself in the middle. You're you're at risk for catching punches or, or you know getting clobbered or getting knocked down or even worse, bringing both players with you as you fall to the ice and, and you're introducing an additional level of risk. Not that these guys can't hurt themselves or each other by punching, but once you're you're sending them off balance and falling to the ice, it, it, it can create an even more dangerous situation. So it's one of those things where you do want to go in as part of a coordinated effort. It's also one where the referees, everybody should remember, they're giving commands to the players. They're trying to tell them to break it up and giving instructions and taking notes for what's happening. But they're not jumping in to break them up. And that's, that's typically not their job to, to do that. So they're not physically jumping in to separate. Certainly, when you have a dangerous situation or when you have one player that's overpowering another one, I think then that changes the complexion of, of where you need to be and how aggressive you need to be in breaking up the fight. But it's a tough spot. You know, people complain that there's four guys on the ice and it's too many extra officials yeah. out there getting in the way. And then this happens and there's not enough. Right. So it's it's a hard spot to be in. But you just have to remember that they have those guidelines that they're working in to try to keep themselves and the players safe. And unfortunately, when you have when you have all these guys pairing off around the ice, there's there's going to be gaps. And it just happened that Terry Beagle fell into one of those. The other part of this, and I, I don't think that they were combining the incidents or the circumstances was correct. But the other part of it is those that suggest Trevor Zagris is a hot dog or showboating is part of the problem is absolutely mistaken. He is both incredibly talented and skilled. He's also an innovator. 
which is why he's been able to find ways to score these goals during the game. And I think it's terrible to try to dumb down the league in that sense of criticizing that. And until the league, the teams and broadcasters get out of the dark ages, then this is going to continue to be a problem. And I put broadcasters in because using analysts with the lack of depth, as we have seen, and I'll name Tyson Nash as an example, but there are others, they are part of the problem. And I don't give a crap that he spent the next 24 or 48 hours backpedaling and trying to justify his comments. He's not capable of proper analysis on a play of this type. And, and I think that we're almost at a crossroads with the game in terms of being innovative and creative and scoring unique goals and having the skill level jump to another higher level and those that still want to keep the game in the dark ages. And I think that that's part of the problem here. I agree with you. I think you, you've got two parts of it, Todd. First off, you have the folks that, that don't agree that creativity and innovation should be where the NHL is going. And and I, I have a hard time understanding that point of view when you have guys that aren't necessarily showboating, but they're just bringing a, 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 some creativity, some different moves, something else out there to the game and I find it so hard that you can be against it, uh, especially, you know, we, we look at the feedback for this of, of showboating and, and being flashy or even going back to John Tortorella's comments uh, with Zegras making the goal from behind the net of, yep. you know, this is this isn't part of the game. This is not what hockey's about. It is it being creative out there, finding new ways to score goals. I mean, isn't that the whole point of, of being innovative, being creative, making it exciting is to find new ways to do it within the rule book. So. My first problem is that you want to stifle creativity and and young players that are coming up with new ways to approach the game, get excitement. And I mean, if on the NHL, social media going viral, videos out there, things being shared, kids emulating it at all levels, this all helps grow the league and its visibility. But the worst part of that is that you can be against it and I can disagree. But when you can justify physical altercations or, or violence or attacks on players for doing that is, is where I think the league really needs to step in and, and stand up for its players' creativity. And we've seen it years and years. I mean, I, I can go back. Certainly the, the non-calls against McDavid have been a concern mm-hmm. in recent history, but you can go all the way back if you want in league history and, and find when the league cracks down on protecting star players – but now we're looking at a situation where you've got guys that are, are trying to excuse rough play or things that are over the line just because it's a response to somebody who is showboating or being creative. And to me, it's bad to disagree. It's horrible when you can justify unnecessary violence and, and attacks like that on the ice as a, a, a legitimate response to someone who's bringing that creativity to hockey. And that leads me to another game situation. And it's sort of the same issue, but in a different kind of circumstance. It was the Penguins and Rangers game, and New York's on their way to a victory. There's about seven and a half minutes left in the third period, and the outcome has been determined. Tyler Mott gets rocked by Anthony Angelo with a hit that sent him flying and sent him out of the game. Angelo was given a two-minute minor for interference. Because of the nature of the hit and the state of the game, that, of course, immediately meant scrums ensued the rest of the way. This is a classic case of there was a big hit on our guy, so now we've got to exact our our pound of flesh as revenge. So that works every time, doesn't it? But I watched the hit a number of times. I listened to what referee analyst Dave Jackson, who I think is doing an excellent job with ESPN, said about it. 
But after watching it and watching and watching, I don't think it's even a penalty. Mott pushes the puck away before, just before he gets hit. He was in a, a vulnerable spot, but got hit. And sometimes players get injured when that happens. But we have to get away from this eye for an eye nonsense. Like you hit our player with a big hit. We don't care if it's legal or not. You have to fight or, or there's going to be physical altercations because of it. And we have to put a stop to that. I, I agree on both counts, Todd. I, I think first off, I, I can absolutely see where it wouldn't be a penalty necessarily. Mott is reaching for the puck. His, his body position has his head lower as he's extending. His body position changes right before the hit, which is right in line with the NHL rulebook, as well as the fact that we need to remember there is such a thing as an illegal check to the head meaning that not all head contact is automatically illegal. So in this case, I, I don't think Angelo went out of his way to deliver a forceful hit. I, I don't know that he necessarily minimized contact because I don't think he had enough time to do so as Mott changed his body position. So I, I agree. I can see where this isn't necessarily a penalty call. But someone responded on, on Twitter, and I wish I could remember which writer it was, who said, why does every hit have to be a thing? There can be a clean hit, there can be a dirty hit, but it seems like every hit now requires guys to stand up and, and you start a scrap or you drop the gloves. What happened to take a number and get the guy later in the game? What happened right. to, you know, a playing harder or, you know, out there on your next shift, you're, you're going to get him back on the scoreboard or something like that. It now seems that every hit, regardless of the legality, has, has turned into a situation where you've got guys dropping the gloves or going after the player who may have delivered a perfectly clean body check. And we have seen that countless times this season alone, that a, a hard, clean check is delivered and a scrum and or fight immediately ensues. And I think Jennifer Botterill, who stood up on a recent Hockey Night in Canada show and said, or what's, what's something that uh, you should think should change in the NHL? She said her comment was, well, if you fight, you're out. That's, it's got to change and it's got to evolve to that. And, and good for her for saying so. It was basically dismissed and not acknowledged, which is typical. But I think that's where we have to go with this. Yeah, I don't know if you need to go to, to fight and you're out in general. I mean, I know the league has done a lot to try to get away from some of the staged fightings or, or, or the, the scraps that come off the face off where you know two guys are going to go at it. But at least in those cases... It's a it's a two sided match. You you have players who know what's going on, and you, we've seen plenty of games this season where there's a big hit, and maybe it's later in the period or another time. You two tough guys want to answer the bell and fight each other. You don't have to love that, but at least it's a mutual reaction. I think to me, the the biggest opportunity is to be more aggressive in that instigator penalty or looking at those situations where you've got a guy who's trying to avenge a hit and make sure you're calling the two, five and 10. You're, you're effectively removing him from the game. You're issuing a power play to the team that delivered the hit because ultimately you have people coming at him for retaliation. And I think that's the only way to go about it is to really crack down on the, Hey, there was a big hit. If somebody goes after him, you're getting two, five and 10. And, and we're going to call that instigator because a normal response, you like I said, you want to take a number, you have a fight later on, fine. But when, when people are coming together and, and starting a scrap immediately following a hit, I, I think that's the only way to get rid of it. And I think that's the only way to make the point that you can't differentiate between a clean hit or a dirty hit. You need to trust that the officials can get those dirty hits, and, and maybe that's a separate issue. But we can't have players taking the law into their own hands and dropping the gloves after every body check. It's a debate I suspect will continue for some time. There is another debate that's going to go on, and that's going to be what happens to Evgeny Malkin. And we'll wrap up with the 
<laughs> the comment that Evgeny Malkin is having a hearing with the Department of Player Safety for the high stick slash cross check to the chops of Mark Borbietsky. You spell it however you want at the Nashville <laughs> Predators. They had an exchange. Uh, Borbietsky got two for slashing. Malkin got a double minor for high sticking and as mentioned is going to have the hearing. As we're recording this, they haven't had the hearing yet, but I think we'll be discussing this one on our next episode.